0: Good morning. My name is Brad Burke and I'm part of the staff team here at Forest Grove Community Church. And as Kevin already so wonderfully introduced, we have Karen Block with us here today as well. And uh, Karen is going to be painting throughout the morning. So we want to at least acknowledge that. We, we are aware she's here. And, uh, and what she's doing is, uh, I've actually been inspired. For those who've uh, seen her work on Facebook or have seen her work in person, uh, does a lot of work with prayer journaling, creating art that has a spiritual message to it. And in fact, uh, she led a, how many weeks? Four weeks. uh, A four-week prayer journaling class here that some of you I know took part in. And just an opportunity to explore how we can interact with Scripture and prayer and interact with our relationship with Jesus through art. And so what she's actually going to be working on throughout the service today is uh, she's been thinking about and praying about this whole idea of Everlasting Father, which will be our theme today. And she'll be, uh, throughout the service, we'll be working on this piece of art over here. And so uh, feel free, if you get bored over here, just shift your attention over there for a bit. And then hopefully you'll come back over here for a bit as well. But uh, she'll be just uh, interacting with the same theme we're talking about this morning, but just in an artistic way. And if I ever stop and just do this for a while, just say, hey! And then I'll come back, because I get really easily distracted. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I thank you for this opportunity we have to spend time in community, in your presence the freedom we have to gather together in this country to worship you and to study Scripture together. And we thank you for that. And I pray now as we have an opportunity to look at Scripture that you would just focus our our hearts and our minds and attention that you would uh, allow the Holy Spirit to just reveal what this uh, passage means to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been a beautiful week outside with some gorgeous weather. And so my mind went back to summer because it was a little nicer then. And this past August, I had an opportunity with my family to go on a vacation, and we did a lot of driving. We actually drove through Regina to Calgary, because I thought that might be the shorter route, and then from Calgary to Drumheller, and, and so we did a lot of time in the car driving. And when I drive, I spend a lot of time thinking. I, I'm not a great driving partner. I spend a lot of time just thinking through things, and a lot of time in my own head, in my own space. And, and because it was August, my mind went to Advent and Christmas, which to many of you seems really strange. But as a worship pastor, for the past 20 years, summer is when I start my work of planning through Advent, Christmas, Christmas Eve, the whole season. And so my mind went there, and I was actually working through a set of, uh, of the Advent themes that we were going to use this year. And I had uh, kind of thought through them. We, I was just flushing them out a bit, trying to figure out how they were going to work. And I heard a voice say in my mind, and his name shall be called, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was clear as day. Now, it wasn't an audible voice. No one else in the car heard it. But I, I heard in my spirit very clearly that passage. That passage that we recite every Christmas. And, and I kind of originally said, no, no, I've got this all figured out. We're going this direction this year. And I started just, the more I thought about it, I, I went, okay, well, I, this came to me for a reason. I need to think through this. And so I started contemplating it again in my mind, just by myself, kind of working through it. And I kept coming back to this idea of Everlasting Father. How is Jesus our everlasting Father? In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew 23, verse 9, And don't address anyone here on earth as Father, for only God in heaven is your Father. Jesus makes it very clear. Only God in heaven is your Father. And this is Jesus speaking, so he's making it clear. I'm not the Father. He's the Father. And and so I'm going, how can this be a title of Jesus if Jesus himself says it's not his title? And so then I actually started engaging with christine so i think she actually started to uh, appreciate that point because i was talking to her now in the car and I, i asked her some questions and she started googling some some commentaries and googling some sermons and reading through some things to me and the more i read about it the more confused i was and i said to myself you know i feel very clear this is the direction we need to go for advent this year because we talk about each of these these titles these royal titles Every year, somewhere in our Advent celebrations, and yet there's some of these that I just don't understand. And if I don't understand it, chances are there's a couple other people here who don't understand it either. And I remember looking over, clear as I remember, sitting in the car, looking over at Christine and saying, I just really feel sorry for whoever has to preach the week that we do Everlasting Father. (laughs) And I never should have said that. And, uh, and yeah, so, and even when, for those who've been going through the devotional book, I, I talked a bit about this at the, in the introduction to the devotional booklet. When I wrote the introduction to the devotional booklet, I was not aware that I would be the one speaking on this Sunday. And it just so turned out that, uh, it worked out best as we talked through a staff who'd be preaching which weeks this one landed on my desk. And I thought, okay, that, 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 that makes sense that I'd be the one who'd be exploring this theme. And so we will talk about that, and as I started studying it and reading through commentaries and reading through various information on it, I started to go, hey, this is actually really a powerful title. Before we jump into the title itself, I want us to look at the book of Isaiah as a whole for a moment. And the reason I want to do this is, you'll probably have noticed that although we're looking at Isaiah 9, verse 6 specifically, for the past couple of weeks, each person speaking has read and looked at other parts of Isaiah and drawn in the book of Isaiah as a whole. And I, I think that even to understand this title properly, we have to understand where Isaiah is coming from as a whole. And so here's something that I found was really interesting. Isaiah is sometimes called the mini-Bible. And uh, if you actually open your Bible to the very middle, you usually end up with it in Isaiah, unless you have a really big section of commentary and notes and stuff at the back. It's right dead center in the Bible. And, and there's some neat correlations between the book of Isaiah and the Bible as a whole. There's a reason they call it the mini-Bible. It starts off, there are 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible. That's a pretty easy coincidence. But the book of Isaiah, when we study it, actually breaks into two very easy sections. There's two main distinct sections. There's two sections in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the book of Isaiah, chapter the first 39 chapters make up the first section, like the first 39 books of the Bible. The next 27 chapters make up the next section of Isaiah, like the next 27 books of the Bible. It starts to become a little more than just a coincidence. I think it's amazing how God can orchestrate these things through the writers of the Bible. Chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah talk about our need for restoration. A lot of people talk about when they read through the book of Isaiah that it seems really depressing. It's a very dark book you actually notice particularly the first 39 books, and the reason it's dark is it's just exploring our need for restoration the same way that our, the Old Testament as a whole explains our need for salvation. Chapters 40 to 66 of Isaiah are prophecies that, of the future provision of salvation. Isaiah starts to talk about, but salvation is going to come. The New Testament shows God's provision for salvation through the Messiah. And in fact, when we look at the second section of Isaiah, chapter 40 begins, we read this last week, with the prophecy of John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way, make the road straight, the path, level the valley. He talks all about this. And then we see in Matthew, we see John the Baptist. And in chapter 66 of Isaiah, we see these prophecies of the new heaven and the new earth. And the 66th book of the Bible is Revelation, which talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And if we had more time, we could continue to go through, and there's more and more correlations between these two. And, and so people have looked at this and said, you know what? It's like Isaiah is this mini version of the themes of the Bible as a whole. God used Isaiah in a real way to do that. In fact, the book of Isaiah, many people feel, presents the most complete revelation of Jesus Christ anywhere in the Old Testament. If you want to look for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, the most complete understanding of it comes in the book of Isaiah. And sometimes it actually has kind of earned this name, the fifth gospel, or the gospel according to Isaiah. And Peter sort of reflects on this in 1 Peter. He says, this, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the gospel plan. And he says, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this, this gracious salvation prepared for you. So even looking back, they said, the prophets understood salvation, even though it wasn't completely... Uh, apparent to them at that time. And one commentator writes it this way. Uh, He writes, Woven throughout the book is the ever-growing revelation of God's love, of Jehovah's salvation, expressed in the person who is to come, the Messiah, the servant of God. At first, the image of the Messiah is dim and shadowy, but gradually the image grows brighter, clearer, and more detailed until in Isaiah 52 and 53... The figure of Christ steps right off the page and fills the whole room. Now, the reason I wanted to talk a bit about this idea of Isaiah and the idea of the gospel of Isaiah and the fact that that people, as we look through there, realize Isaiah prophetically understood much of what was to come through the life of Jesus is this will actually help us to understand the the title that we look at today, this title of Everlasting Father. Father. And as we've gone through so far, you'll realize that each of the titles sort of has two key parts to it. There's the title itself, and then there's this juicy word, this adjective that describes it. My son Seth is in in school right now. They're they're learning about uh, descriptive words, and they call them juicy words. And I love that. It's this idea of just, it, it helps you totally understand what that word means. And so the first week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. Counselor's the title, but he's a Wonderful Counselor. Then we looked at Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's a title and a descriptor. And as I started to do some research into this and started to try to understand this better, I realized that in the day that Isaiah was writing to describe any king, the title wasn't the issue. They would understand those. And so even when when I looked at this, when I first started looking at this title of Everlasting Father, I struggled with Father. Everlasting made sense to me. I struggled with the title of father. And yet to Isaiah's audience, father made sense to them because that was a standard title used to describe the kings. In fact, each one of these titles of, of um, counselor, prince, um, father, even God is used throughout the scriptures of kings in the line of David. And each one of these, there's places we can see these same titles used to describe a king. The titles wouldn't have surprised people. What would have surprised people was the adjective, was the juicy word that came before. He's not just going to be a counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. He's not just this, this, this God. He's not just God. In that case, when, he's, when they've referred to kings as God, it's this messenger of God or this person doing God's will. But he is almighty God. He's not just a prince, but he's the prince who brings peace. It was that part that meant a lot to them. And so the title Father was never meant to describe who Jesus was in the context of the Trinity, because Jesus makes it very clear that the Father and Son are separate in the concept of the Trinity. But it's not in the relationship to the Trinity, it's the relationship to humankind. He is the Father to humankind. And we see in in biblical times, Father was often used for the title of a leader, or the title of the, the beginning of a movement. Abraham is the father of Israel. So because we've established this, the adjective that's most important, we're actually going to take most of our time this morning looking at this adjective, everlasting. Look at the the term everlasting and how that applies to Jesus. What we can learn about Jesus through the fact that he's not just the father of humankind, but he is the everlasting father. And I believe the word everlasting kind of will have a twofold meaning. We find two distinct meanings of the word everlasting when we look at the ministry and life of Jesus and how he impacts us and his relationship with us. And the first is simply to affirm that Jesus is eternal. And to many of us here, we just look at that and go, well, of course, that makes sense. We we, we understand Jesus is eternal. He always was, he always will be. And yet, we live in a society increasingly where that can't be taken for granted, because there are many people who will acknowledge that Jesus was a historical figure, that Jesus was a good man, that he was a great teacher with great teachings, but won't acknowledge that he was eternal, that he always was. There are some believe that that would even say that Jesus entered into the earth as a human baby, as we hear in the Nativity story. But that's where Jesus became. That's where Jesus started. And so we live in a world where we can't take for granted that Jesus is eternal. And yet, it has massive implications for our life. So as we look through Scripture, we realize that Scripture itself affirms this eternal nature of Jesus. In John 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, the Word already existed. And in John's Gospel, the Word is a reference to Jesus. And so so in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. So we read that right from the beginning of time, Jesus already existed. He always was. Later in John's Gospel, a few verses later, we read, God created everything through him. Through him was Jesus, through the Word. And nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought life to everyone. So even when we're discussing the creation of the world and who created the world, often we start off by saying, well, God created the world. But when we read through Scripture, we actually realize that Jesus played an important part in that creation. And so it's not incorrect to say, well, actually, Jesus created the world. Because in that verse, in in John, it says everything was created through him. Nothing was created except what was created through him. He was there at the very beginning. Jesus himself states this in, in the book of John when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So we can clearly establish from Scripture that Jesus always was. And so the second part of being eternal is always will be. We need to have both of those components to be eternal. Always was, always will be. And again, as we go through Scripture, we can find the affirmation very quickly that Jesus always will be. In Revelation 1, verse 18, he says, I am the living one. I died, which is what happened on the cross. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. And in Hebrews 7, we read, But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. And so this this is a big concept. First of all, that he's eternal, that he'll be forever. But even what's brought up here, this idea that his priesthood will be forever. We read in the New Testament that Jesus has become the great high priest. Jesus takes on this role of the high priest. And he's an eternal high priest. The next verse of Hebrews 7 says, Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. And to fully understand what this means, we have to understand the role of the high priest. Because if Jesus is going to become our high priest, again, to the the audience of the day reading through this and hearing these words, they would totally understand, they would completely understand the role of the high priest. Today, that's not part of our normal culture. And there's lots of parts of it. For some of you, again, you've studied this. This makes sense for some. You may be going, okay, so, so what is the significance of that? The high priest had many responsibilities. There There's many things the high priest was responsible for. But possibly the most important responsibility of the high priest was on the Day of Atonement, once a year. One time a year, he would go into the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the part of the temple that was divided off from the rest. Once a year, he would enter there. And he would make atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the entire nation for the past year. He would make atonement for all of the sins from the past year. That's how forgiveness and atonement was offered. The high priest's responsibility. So in understanding that, the role of the high priest, we can better comprehend the significance of Christ's offering. Because he removes that need for the high priest. Or for the high priest. Because he offered himself for our sins once and for all. It was the eternal offering for us. And through Christ's sacrifice for us, we are sanctified. We're set apart for him. And by entering God's presence on our behalf, Christ has secured kind of like an eternal redemption for us. And so suddenly this idea of Christ being eternal about him living forever becomes a very important part of what he does for us and our relationship with him. The eternal nature of Jesus allows him to fill this role permanently. It's not a priest that can do this once a year and who will eventually die and be replaced by somebody else. This is someone who has taken that place and is eternal and will stand before God on our behalf and provides atonement for us. Jesus is the only person that can fill that role. In First Timothy... We read, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. He is the only one who can fill that role. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the first understanding of this title, Everlasting Father, is simply to acknowledge the fact that Jesus was eternal. That he always was and always will be. And that has huge implications for our relationship with him. Because he can stand in the gap between us and God. And take on the role of the high priest and provide atonement eternally. This eternal redemption that's offered to us. And then we move on to the second second part of it. I said there were sort of two understandings of this. And to better understand the second implication of the title takes a little bit of understanding of even the translation that that we look at compared to the original language. As you know, the the Bible wasn't offered to us originally in the English language, and so it's translated. And then we have all of our translations, our various versions of the Bible, which translate things differently as well. And to kind of help understand this, rushing, I just want to look for a second at the title that we'll be talking about next week, the idea of Prince of Peace. It's interesting that all of the other titles have the juicy word followed by the title. He's Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let me switch that one around. Grammatically, we could put it the other way. He would be the peaceful prince, is how we would put it the other way. And yet you can tell right away there's a difference in the implication between The Prince of Peace and the Peaceful Prince. A peaceful prince means that the prince is a peaceful individual, and I think that it would apply to Jesus. I think that way it would apply. But the title that's being explained here is different in that he's not describing that Jesus is peaceful, but he's the prince who brings peace. He's the prince who offers peace. He's the prince who's the source of peace to the people. And so by changing the order of the words, you actually get a different implication. And we look at Everlasting Father, there are many people who believe that it actually is better understood the same way if we invert those two words. We actually get a better understanding of this title, Everlasting Father, if we look at it as the Father of the Everlasting. Or Father of Eternity. And the term Father, again, when we looked at that often is this idea of the source of, or giving, or that who brings. And if we look at it this way, suddenly he becomes the source of eternity. He becomes the person who brings eternity, the person who brings the everlasting. Which again, has a, different, a bit of a different flavor than everlasting Father. And as we described earlier, and that was the reason we started where we did, Isaiah seemed to have this knowledge of the gospel plan, this prophetic understanding of what was going to happen. And he may not have completely understood it, but, but 700 years before Jesus was even born, he, he had this understanding of this. And if we know that, that the greater book explains in great detail not only the need for salvation, but how that salvation was going to happen in the future it's not hard to understand that that Isaiah would have, or a not hard connection to make, that Isaiah may have understood that, that Jesus was going to be the source of eternity for all who believe. And as everlasting Father, Jesus can be that source of eternity for us. We read in John 3, verses 14 to 16, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, And so you remember this story? The Israelites are out, and they're in the wilderness, and and these snakes come, and they start biting people, and people are getting sick, and people are dying. And so they go, and and, and they ask God what they can do, and, and Moses gets the instruction, he needs to make a bronze snake. And he has to lift it up high on a pole. And anyone who is bitten by the snake, if they simply look at the pole, will be healed. They'll live. And so we read, they're referencing back to that and says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Again, that is where the life comes from. Back in that situation, look at the pole, look at the snake, you'll have life. And he's saying, but now, Jesus will be lifted up, and that's how we will have life. That's how life will come to us. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. John three sixteen that verse that so many of us know, have memorized as a child, and many of the, the kids in our Grove Kids ministry could recite that for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the source of eternal life. In 1 John, we read, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So uh, this next part is for those who believe in the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. And again, he connects it. If you believe, you will have eternal life. And he says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. Jesus is the source of eternity for us. Not only is he, and and the two kind of pieces, these two uh, understandings of the word everlasting are linked. Not only is he everlasting and eternal, and that means that he can be the eternal high priest and offer us that redemption, but he also, because of that, is the father and source of eternity in our life. He is the one way that we can have Eternal life. And so for many of you, these two concepts aren't new. Many of you walked in this morning and said, would have affirmed clearly, I believe that Jesus is eternal and I believe that he is the one way to eternal life. And so the big question for me is, so what do we do with this, this Advent season? What, what difference does this make? How does this impact our lives, this Advent season? And I think there's two ways that I'd, I'd encourage you to take this and use this this week. First of all, I ask you, have you ever received this gift? Have you personally ever received this gift? And as we went through those verses, it was made clear that it's whoever believes will have eternal life. Whoever believes in the name of Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus, will have this gift of eternal life from the source, from the Father of eternity. And yet, as we look at this, the word believes is an important word. Because, in the way, again, going back to the original languages, belief isn't head knowledge alone. And to kind of explain that and make that clear, I'm going to use a modern example. Think of a celebrity, someone that maybe you admire or look up to. Maybe it's a sports figure, a movie star, a politician, a musician you may know a lot about them. In fact, with today's social media and magazines and everything's out, you may know way too much about them. And you may know what their house looks like and where they go on vacation and what their family's like and what they're doing for Christmas. This year. You may know a lot about them. But you don't know them. And they don't know you. And we can actually be the same way with Jesus. It's not just about knowledge. You may have attended Forest Grove Community Church for decades. You may be involved in ministries. You may read your Bible on a regular basis. You may go to every, uh, you know, be studying constantly. And that's all great. But that in and of itself does not equate to all who believe in Jesus. Because it's possible to have head knowledge, but still not have relationship. And so I'm I'm guessing most people who would fall into that category, who've attended Forest Grove for decades and are involved in ministries and are reading their Bible and are growing, have the relationship side too. But it's not a given, and that's the important thing. It's not about knowing who God is, it's about knowing God. It's not about knowing who Jesus was, it's about knowing Jesus. It's interesting that some people enter into that relationship with Jesus after they know a lot. For some people, just the way they're wired, they need to know the answers to the questions. They need to know all about Jesus before they can know Jesus. And that's the journey that some people take to Him, and that's great. Other people enter into a relationship, they know Jesus far before they know anything about him. And for myself, Um, when I look at my relationship with, with Christine, it took years to get to know her and will continue to take years to continue to get to know her. And that's part of that journey. And so my question for you is, have you begun that journey? Have you entered into relationship? Do you know about God or do you know God? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? And if you just know about him, make today that day that you enter into a relationship. Or if you're here for the very first time, make today the day that you start that journey of knowing both, knowing Jesus and knowing about him. And if you do that, there's there's no magic formula on how you do this. There's no magic prayer that you have to say just right. It's simply a matter of acknowledging that we're sinful. The Bible says we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Acknowledge you're sinful, confess those sins and ask for his forgiveness and tell him that you want him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. That's all it takes. And if you do that, or if you want someone to walk through that with you, come talk to me after the service. Come talk to to someone who's on the platform after the service, a staff member, the person beside you. We'd love to walk through that with you and tell someone about it. And so that's the first application. If you've never done that, do that. And the second one is, if we truly believe that Jesus is the only source of eternity, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, That if the gift of eternity is only offered through Jesus, it's a gift we can't keep to ourselves. And so my question is, this Advent season, who is God asking you to share with Who is God asking you to tell? And I encourage you this week to take some time and just pray and say, God, share those names. Place those names in my heart who I should be praying for. Who I should tell. Maureen talked a couple of weeks ago just about this idea of sharing the gospel with those around us. And I encourage you to let that happen this Advent season. Maybe the first step is inviting someone to the Christmas Eve service or the Christmas Day service and inviting them there. Maybe that's your first step. Maybe it's just inviting them into your house this Christmas season and talking about why Christmas is an important season to you. Inviting them to your small group. But just being intentional about that and praying for those people. Isaiah understood that Jesus would be the Father of Eternity. And in the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, right back in the first chapter, God offers his promise to a world that's enslaved by rebellion and helplessness. A promise of cleansing and forgiveness. A promise of a new beginning. And he writes in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Heavenly Father, we come before you and I thank you for the promise that we find in Isaiah that if we come to you, that you will wash us clean. You will make us white again. I thank you that you sent the Father of eternity to live in our midst and to provide that opportunity for us to know you in a new way. For us to uh, be washed clean. For us to have that gift of eternity available to us. We thank you for that. We pray as we go through the the remainder of the Advent season that you would calm our hearts and our minds and allow us to put time aside to reflect on the true meaning of this season.